You're listening to a 3CR podcast created in the studios of independent community radio station 3CR in Melbourne, Australia. For more information, go to allthews.3cr.org.au. Evil minds that plot destruction, sorcerer of death's construction. In the fields of bodies burning. Machine keeps turning Death and hatred to mankind Poisoning their brainwashed minds Welcome to the Anarchist World This Week broadcast across Australia on the National Community Radio Satellite. Listen to the Anarchist World This Week, Australia's sacred cow slaughterhouse. Listen to analysis of local, national and international events. Listen to analysis you'll never hear anywhere else. Welcome to the Anarchist World This Week, broadcast from the studios of Radio 3CR in Melbourne, Radical Radio 3CR in Melbourne. My name is Joseph Toscano. Karina has been uh, the producer of the program. You got any complaints? Talk to her. Don't bother me with them. She's smiling at me as she slams the door shut. Also, like, <laughs> there we go. It's been slammed. Also, like to thank all those people at the uh, community radio network who uh, have been instrumental in allowing the Anarchist World this week to be broadcast across Australia by the community radio network. If you're wondering what anarchy is all about, no, it's not about slamming doors. That's about frustration. Anarchist society, anarchos, without rulers. It's about creating a society without rulers. What gives rulers the ability to determine the lives of hundreds of millions, if not billions of people? Inequalities in power and wealth. So the anarchist struggles, the struggle to devolve power, that's share power, possibly through direct democratic means, and the struggle to hold wealth in common and use it for the common good. Exceptionally conservative concepts, which the human race has been trying to implement since time immemorial, sometimes with some success and sometimes in total failure. That's the reality. It's not the end point. The end point is important, but what's really important is the journey towards that end point. How do we get from A to B? And that's the thing that we are all consumed with if we're interested in change. My name's Joseph Toscano. Now, I'm interested that in Canberra there's been a um, conference of organisations, I think over 200 that are involved in disaster management in this country. And obviously, with climate change becoming a climate emergency and with the world really not taking it that seriously because of the, the private investment for private profit mantra, which uh, seems to drive most of the world, disasters, I don't want to call them natural disasters anymore because they're basically human-engineered Disasters, obviously, apart from earthquakes, human engineered disasters are becoming a little bit more prevalent. And that means more and more people on a crowded globe are beginning to be impacted. 
It was all right. There's about a few thousand of us, hundred thousand years ago, living in the African veldt. It's a little bit different when there's eight billion living on a shrinking planet. Now I've spoken about this before, but I, I'm going to speak about it again because I'm really sick and tired of the piecemeal approach that we, as a people, as a country, and various levels of government, have taken to disaster management. And what I've been proposing for some time now, over a decade, and obviously nobody listens except you, what I've been proposing for over a decade is a, is a different model by which we are in a better position to deal with emergencies, whether they're human-engineered or whether they're not human-engineered, whether they're due to a virus or a pandemic, whether they're due to an earthquake, fires, floods, cyclones, you name it. And what I've been proposing is very simple. And that's the thing about most things in life, as I said last week. They're not complex. It's simple. Having the political will to implement ideas is complex. And there is no political will unless there's pressure from the population at large. Because, you know, whenever we have a disaster, we have the disaster pictures, you know, people in the abject, abject, abject sadness, abject, you know, it's just, it's just extraordinary the pain that people are forced to go through. And more importantly, well, the pain they're not forced to go to, but the pain they have to, you know, travel through. And the piecemeal response to people losing everything, the piecemeal response from the state and the inadequate response from the insurance industry especially as insurance becomes more and more unaffordable and over a quarter of Australians actually don't actually have their homes insured if they can't afford to. You know, we're talking about thousands of dollars every year. So disaster management, what I'm proposing is very simple. Obviously, I'm sure other people have proposed it over and over again. But it's very simple. Creating 50 disaster centres around the country. Centres that are fully equipped, fully staffed, that have residential accommodation, which would be able to go into action within a few moments of a disaster occurring. And these centres could be based on a, a simple model say, one centre for every 500,000 people in an urban setting and, say, one centre for 250,000 people, a quarter of a million people in a regional, rural setting. Now, I can see you throwing up your hands in horror and saying, where's the money? Where are the, 
Where are the resources? Where are the resources? Well, it's very simple. A 5% tax, yearly 5% tax on corporations which are turnover of more than $100 million. Now, there are many corporations in Australia and privately owned businesses with a turnover of more than $100 million. Now, obviously, many of these corporations will offset that tax onto consumers. But at the end of the day, we all benefit because we're in a better position to respond to disasters as they occur. Not in a Pierce Mill manner, but in a coordinated manner. For far too long, we've relied on volunteers and more recently on the armed forces. We've relied on the private insurance industry. And to a significant degree, people who have suffered a disaster find themselves dealing with the situation by themselves years later, and in many cases where there's no personal insurance, they never are able to get back to the situation they found themselves in. So as the climate change moves to a climate emergency, we need to be able to have a disaster management, not plan, but disaster management infrastructure in place to deal with disasters as they occur. You're listening to The Anarchist World this week, broadcast across Australia via the Community Radio Network. As I said before, it's not about not having the resources. It's about having the political will to ensure the resources are created. I can guarantee a 5% tax on turnover on privately owned corporations or even state-owned corporations which have a turnover of more than $100 million per year would raise more than enough money. And when you think about how little taxation the corporate sector pays in this country, you would think that some of their... they would be falling over themselves to help create these disaster management centres across the country. And I reckon about 50 centres would be more than enough to deal with any major disaster on the continent of Australia. Let's move on. NDIS, Home Affairs. What did you expect? Hmm? What did you expect? When you give over a government service to the private sector, what do you expect? Now, everybody's talking about the public service. A few weeks ago, it was about the colonisation of the public service by the corporate sector, you know, creating a superhighway to the Australian Treasury. And today we're talking about, you know, Mr Pasulo, you know, the politicisation of the upper echelons of the public service. Well, for decades, we have politicised the upper echelons of the public service. That's why disasters like robo-debt, and that was a disaster for tens of thousands, not hundreds of thousands of people, Australians, that's what occurs. If you put people with the same ideological position who are pushing the same 
ideological, you know, boat as the government of the day in charge of huge departments like Home Affairs, what do you expect? And if you create an excellent organisation like the National Disability Insurance Scheme, which I was involved in, you know, over 40 years, I was involved in actions to create a National Disability Insurance Scheme because obviously it wasn't fair that people who were not involved in a traffic accident or a work accident received nothing despite the disabilities they had, whether they were born with them or whether they acquired them later on in life. And what was a magnificent idea has now to a significant degree been trashed. Trashed by allowing the private sector to think of the National Disability Insurance Scheme as a cash cow. I'll give you a practical example. Now, under the National Disability Insurance Scheme, people with profound physical and intellectual disabilities not only are able to receive personal care, but they're also able to have modifications to their home. And what is happening is we are seeing extraordinary levels of economic exploitation of the National Disability Insurance Scheme, not outright criminal behaviour, but behaviour which causes huge amounts of capital to flow from the Treasury into private pockets for minimal return. I'll give you an example. A year ago, somebody I knew was having some renovations done on their bathroom to make it accessible through the National Disability Insurance Scheme. Now, obviously, during that period, the renovation period, they needed some other type of, you know, toilet and showering facilities for themselves and the other people in that house. Now, for four weeks, the quotes which came in to provide that service ranged from 4000 to 18000 Just an extraordinary range. And the National Disability Insurance Scheme, not having enough staff, really has little control or little oversight about the amount of money which is flowing out of the Treasury to provide services to, uh, for people who are on the National Disability Insurance Scheme. And we are seeing a gross exploitation of that system because it was totally privatised by the Liberal National Party. Totally privatised. Totally. And people are charging extraordinary sums to provide basic services. And it's got to such a situation, as, as you see in the last few days, that packages are you know, given to people to help them deal with their 
disability, whether it's intellectual or physical, acquired or congenital, and a significant proportion of that package, we're talking about 50, 60, 70% going in fees and charges for services which are not rendered or services where the bill that's gone in has really not had any... It really has nothing to do with the service which is provided. And in my field of human endeavour, I see it every day. Every day. So the issue is not whether the National Disability Insurance Scheme is a good scheme or a bad scheme or a good idea or a bad idea. I mean, it's an extraordinarily good idea to provide services, modifications to people with disabilities in this country. But to allow that to become a cash cow for the private sector has been a total disaster. You're listening to The Anarchist World this week. Broadcast across Australia via the Community Radio Network. My name's Joseph Toscano. Now, let's move on. What will the loss of the voice referendum mean for Australia's First Nations? Now, life is a win-lose situation, everything, you know. You can cross a road... You can look to the left, to the right, to the right again and then cross and get across. Or you can close your eyes and cross the road and be knocked by a car. It's a win-lose situation. Everything in life is a win-lose situation. You know, breathing is a win-lose situation. You don't breathe, you die. But there's been a lot of talk regarding the voice referendum and obviously on the 14th of October or before if you're going to pre-poll, you're going to have to make a decision whether you vote yes or no. And I've been fascinated by the uh, coalescing of disparate voices in the No campaign from the sovereign nation uh, ideas to the rabid racist ideas. Now, as I said before, what do you lose by voting yes? What do the Australian people lose? What do we lose? Irrespective of what you thought about the Uluru Statement from the Heart, it's one of the few examples where the differing First Nations came together and came up with three concepts. A constitutional voice, a treaty and truth-telling. Right? Now, this constitutional voice is not a radical proposal. It's a very simple concept. There's nothing radical about it whatsoever. It's about the original owners of the land and their descendants having the ability to influence government directly by having a voice which is enshrined in this country's DNA, which is the Australian Constitution. I've said all along, change is about political momentum. If the voice referendum is lost, that momentum stops. 
as we saw with the Republican referendum in 1999, which was 24 years ago. We know that the Liberal National Party and most of the minor parties are not interested in treaty, a constitutional voice, or even truth-telling. We know that. We know that. And for them to get their way on the 14th of October will mean that that momentum to treaty and truth-telling will disappear. Because here at you know, the Anarchist World this week, we may talk a reasonable amount about this, this country's situation as far as First Nations people are concerned. But the majority of Australians have little contact with First Nations people about the only information they get is what they hear on the media or social media. Most of it is negative, not positive. And it doesn't matter to them, at the end of the day, whether the referendum wins, the Yes campaign wins or loses, because it has no direct effect on them. But it will have a direct effect on First Nations people because it stops that momentum for real change. So when you look at your ballot paper, look at it and think to yourself, what will a loss mean? What will a loss mean? Do we want more of the same or do we want to move towards reconciliation? Listen to the Anarchist World this week. Broadcast across Australia by the Community Radio Network. My name's Joseph Toscano. Now, I have to laugh sometimes. You know, sometimes you've got to laugh in life because it's, uh, <laughs> it can be pretty pathetic. And I've been watching the media reaction, social media, you know, legacy media, whatever you call it, to the screenwriters and actors strike in the US of A. All right. Now, we like to bag the US of A for a variety of reasons, and I will continue in that vein later on in the program. But did you hear that? Strike. The word strike. They're actually gone on strike. And apart from losing their wages, we're not seeing $10,000 penalties apply to each individual striker for striking. Hmm? If the same thing occurred in this country, unless the strike action occurred during enterprise bargaining agreement period and, and, and the trade union involved had jumped through about 15 hoops to call a two-hour strike, every one of those workers... Every screenwriter, every actor would be, could be fined $10,000 a day under legislation. I mean, we like to th talk about the evil Chinese Communist Party and the dastardly Russians and all those dictatorships where people don't have the right to strike. But in reality... To a significant degree, we have removed through legislation because of our constitutional arrangements 
the ability of workers to collectively bargain. And this reminds me that little has changed since 1822. That's right, 201 years ago to be exact, March, 1st of March, 1822. Australia's first recorded strike. Well, it actually wasn't even a strike. I've actually looked at the court documents and there are court documents regarding this case available on Trove, and you can have a look at them yourselves if you wish. The name is James Straiter. S-T-R-A-I-T-E-R. James Straiter. And in March 1822, which is, what, 30 years after colonisation began... No, I'm incorrect there. 34 years. Mr James Strater, a convict who had been assigned to Mr MacArthur of wool fame to look after his sheep. He'd been moved from the Mount Druitt station where he was working for the Druitt brothers to the MacArthur station. And it was his job to look after 350 sheep. And at the Mount Druid station, he was paid in rations. Because in those days, they didn't pay people in cash. They didn't occur till the currency lads and lasses turned up later on. And we could talk about that another day. His rations were decreased from 17 and a half pounds of wheat per week to nine pounds of wheat per week. All right? Almost halved. Now, you've got to understand that looking after 350 sheep is hard physical labour, and you need a little bit of food you know, to survive. And the fact that the rations were almost halved really upset Mr James Strater. And he started talking about, you know, that we should not feed the sheep and... Uh, do it during the lambing season. I know how much wool is worth, he kept saying. You pay us nothing. We're always in debt to you. Because you've got to remember that Australia was built on three pillars. One was genocide of the First Nations inhabitants. Two was, once the genocide was and dispossession was completed, was... Guess what? Free land for gentlemen of name and quality. That's right. Gentlemen of name and quality who are invited to come to Australia to select tens of thousands, not hundreds of thousands of acres on which to grow sheep and send the wool back to England to the industrial hellhole that England was with the beginning of industrialisation. right? And the third thing was free labour. And that's your convicts. You paid them in rations. So this Mr James Strater, who's disappeared from the historical record, was upset. And he was carrying on and shouting and doing this and doing that. And obviously his overseer came along and then, you know, somebody a bit higher and he was arrested and turfed off to Sydney. And he was charged with this heinous crime. All right. Inciting, 
his master's servants to combine. That's the key, to combine. Inciting his master's servants to combine, to oblige him to increase their wages, which we will never pay to them, but that's that's a aside, and improve their rations. This was the charge. Inciting his master's servants to combine to improve their wages, sorry, to raise their wages and improve their rations. And I'll say it again, because it's very similar to the situation we find ourselves in 201 years later. Inciting his master's servants to combine to oblige him to raise their wages and improve their rations. And for his audacity, where maybe inadvertently he challenged the very basis of colonial Australian colonial society, genocide, three land, three labour. Three magistrates convicted him of that heinous charge. It is heinous. Inciting his master's servants to combine to oblige him to raise their wages and improve their rations after they halved his rations, heinous crime, he was sentenced to 500 lashes. That's in one sitting. Not 50 a day, 500 lashes. And if he survived that, he would then be sentenced to one month solitary confinement on bread and water. Could you imagine that? A festering back, the bones protruding from 500 lashes in a filthy cell, the chances of infection and septicemia being almost overwhelming. And if he survived that, just in case he survived that, he was to serve the rest of his sentence at Port Macquarie in Western Tasmania, Hell on earth. It made Norfolk Island, penal colony, look like a picnic. I mean, convicts used to draw lots about who's going to kill who so they'd be hung to get out of the misery they found themselves in. That was your sentence to. 500 lashes, one month's imprisonment on bread and water and the rest of his sentence at living hell of Port Macquarie. Now, I can't find any further references regarding Mr James Strainer, whether he survived the flogging or not. But I do know that 201 years later, we don't actually flog our workers physically. We flog them economically and we bankrupt their unions if they strike outside an enterprise bargaining agreement period. Could you imagine, could you imagine the pressure you would be under if you were involved in an illegal strike in this country and were fined $10,000 a day? Hmm? Could you imagine? It's almost as evil as a flogging. Could you imagine the impact that would have on your family or any dependents you had? 
Now, you may say to me, well, it's only been used once or twice. But the fact is, it's in legislation. That's the whole point. The whole point of James Strater receiving 500 lashes, four week, one month solitary confinement on bread and water, and being sent to Port Macquarie, a hellhole, was to tell other people... This is what happens to you if you combine to improve your situation. This is what will happen to you. you know? It's the same today. All you need to do is hassle a few workers and say to them, this is what happened to you if you strike outside a bargaining agreement period. If you combine and strike outside a bargaining agreement period to pr- improve your situation. So, it would be lovely, wouldn't it, if Australian workers, like the screenwriters of the USA and the actors of the USA who are on strike, had the right to picket as well as the right to withdraw their labour. You listen to The Anarchist World this week, broadcast across Australia by the Community Radio Network. Now, I'm going to send you a little bit of homework because obviously some of you have got more time than I have. I'm really interested in finding out what happened to James Strater. I do know that in 1825 there was an inquiry into the type of punishment which was meted out to criminals in inverted commas and the case of James Strater was raised as an example of what happens and uh, the legislation was changed so that a convict could only receive 25 lashes a day but that's the only other record I could find. But obviously there are people out there who've got much more time and much more savvy. And if you can find out what happened to James, I'd be very interested because next year we'll be organising a day to mark the beginning of the Australian trade union movement, something the trade union movement itself should have done years ago. But obviously they're under so much legislative pressure. We've got the ridiculous situation where wage rises in 2023 are actually less than inflation because most of the rights that uh, workers have in the US of A we don't have in this country. Let's move on. All the way with the USA. The superhighway to disaster. Now, obviously, it looks like the next US election will be between the living dead, Mr Biden, and uh, crazy horse, Mr Trump, all right? Yeah, man has been accused of multiple crimes. That'll be the next election, man. Look, I, I don't particularly care. Well, I do, but I really don't because I've got no influence anywhere, let alone the United States of America. I mean, they can elect who they like for president, but there are consequences for us. And that's what we need to remember. There is always consequences for us. It's like the voice referendum. Ultimately, whether it's yes or no, it's not going to affect me personally, but it will have a profound effect on First Nations people. The thing about the USA is that our military complex, our Australian Navy, Australian Armed Forces, Australian Air Force is totally integrated 
into the USA, not just in terms of ideology and philosophy, but actually in terms of hardware, in terms of the types of military hardware which this country has been purchasing over the last few years, well, last few decades. That hardware cannot function without USA support, technical support. And in many of the cases of the new equipment that's been bought, it's totally integrated into the USA system, not just in terms of sitting ideology, but in terms of physical practicalities. Do we really want to give up our sovereign right as a country to defend ourselves from aggression to a third party that has a history of walking away when the going gets tough? That has a history of saying, and I can understand why a US president would say this, that I am in charge to look after the interests of the USA, not the interests of Australia. They may be an ally, but my fundamental, my primary aim, whether it's Biden or Trump, is to look after the interests of the United States of America. And for us as a country to be fully integrated into their military-industrial complex is a disaster in slow motion. It's a total disaster. Because if you think, as a people, that our protection lies in this alliance, we should think again. Because obviously what's going to happen in the USA in the last next few years could be a, could, could create an exceptionally difficult situation for this country and the people of this country. This is the Anarchist World this week, broadcast across Australia via the Community Radio Network. This program is streaming live on 3cr.org.au. The program is podcast. You can access the podcast by going to 3cr.org.au, 3cr.org.au. A few Facebook pages, um, Joseph Toscana, Toscana for the Public, Public Housing, Everybody's Business, Defend and Extend Public Housing, Peter Norman, Facebook page, web pages, um, Public Interest Before Corporate Interest, anarchismedia.org, the list goes on and on. You can leave messages on 0439 395 489, 04. 39395489. You can even send letters to Post Office Box 20, Parkville, 3052. And unlike most other entities, we do answer letters. You know, we think it's important that you have all forms of communication available to people because not everybody has embraced the technological changes. I'm not going to use the word advances, technological changes, which are which are coming about to a large degree without huge positive value 
to individuals in this country. So there's, you've got many mechanisms by which to contact us. Let's move on. Ah, privatisation boy quits. Poor old Danny. Danny Andrews. Poor old Danny. He's had enough. Nine years out in the front, a centralised bureaucracy. Nine years, and uh, I've heard it all in the last 24 hours. Or was it eight, 16 hours? It seems like a day. No, it's about 18 hours. I can't remember exactly, and I don't really care. So he quits, all right? Look, Danny's a professional politician. He's, he's, that's his only job. His only job has been he's been a politician. Obviously, he's got a nice superannuation um, account, which is built up and uh, on 400,000 400, plus a year. You tend to save a little bit, which is fine, fine by me. Now, a lot of people are bitching about the debt. You know, they're saying Victoria's a debt of $170 billion, more than, uh, New, what is it, Queensland, Tasmania and something else combined. And I'm thinking, $170 billion? For a state, that's nothing. That is nothing. And the great thing about being a state in the Federation of Australia is there were referendums which were successful. There's only been eight referendums. I think it's nine, sorry, my apologies, referendums that have been successful since 1901. And two of them were about state debt. Because the Commonwealth could at any time take over state debt. It's not as if the state is ultimately responsible for its debt. It's the Commonwealth government, the federal government, which is ultimately responsible. So if you build stuff and, you know, you employ people and they pay taxes, eventually, you know, you pay off the debt. That's the whole point about building stuff. And the great thing about living in Melbourne as it ballooned from two million to, was it 5.5 million, that, uh, or 5 million, you know, very little infrastructure occurred. So I'm not going to criticise Danny and his cohorts for the big build. I think it's pathetic, you know, doing this big build, but I am really annoyed. And I'm not annoyed with Mr Andrews regarding the COVID-19 response, because ultimately, everything the state governments did was totally legal under our constitutional arrangements. Now, if we're stupid enough as a people to accept that we don't need any rights incorporated in our constitution, well, we deserve what we get. All right? So they all acted legally within the constitutional framework. Because as I said, you know, have a look at the Australian constitution. If you go to a YouTube channel, Joseph Toscano dot nam n a r m. I've done a section there in the Australian Constitution which highlights how ineffective it is as far as rights are concerned. Also, you can go to public interest before corporate interest. We've got about two hundred and fifty plus YouTube presentations between twenty and thirty minutes on a variety of subjects, including the Australian Constitution. So it's there. But what I am really concerned about, what really I can't forgive Mr Andrews for, and his government, although he thought he was the government, but that's a different story, is his privatisation orgy. Like a bull in a china shop. What we've seen over the last nine years 
is privatization for privatization's sake. We've seen the privatization of the Port of Melbourne so a few railway crossings could be removed. We saw the privatization of the titles office. We've seen the privatization of Vic Roads. And although they say we haven't privatized it, you know, you know, it's gonna go for forty years. If you want to see what happens in forty years, look at what happens to what happened with Transurban. It's not just privatisation, it's the relationship which has been created with the construction sector, not the CFMEU, but the actual construction companies. They're the great profiteers from this privatisation orgy. And the thing I don't really forgive him for, and his government, it's not him, his government, because they put up their hands at the same time, don't they? Let's not blame one individual. It's easy to blame an individual. You've got to look at the government. This is supposedly a socialist left government. And what was Mr Andrews' crowning glory a week before he said, I've changed my mind. It's all too hard. I need to look after my family, as if not every other bloody Australian wants to look after their family but don't find themselves in the same economically positive situation to look after their family. What he said was, you know, is the privatisation of the public health, public housing sector, the sale of publicly owned land to the corporate sector, the virtual giving away of publicly owned land around the state to corporations to create so-called community housing, which is privately owned. And if there's one thing, one thing that Mr Andrews should be remembered for it's this privatisation of the public housing sector. Because a weak public housing sector is what has contributed to the current housing shortage and the escalation of housing prices and rents. So forget about the bloody debt, the state debt. That can be taken over by the Commonwealth Government at any time. $170 billion is a drop in the ocean. Forget about, you know, the big build. But let's remember the cost. The fact is that everything that could be privatised has been privatised. There was even noise about privatising the Transport Accident Commission and work cover until the trade union movement, Melbourne Trades Hall and Ballarat Trades Hall and Bendigo Trades Hall put up their hand and said, look, enough is enough. And that's the reality. This policy of privatising public housing is a total disaster. It's a disaster, not just for those people who are, being, who are going to be forcefully relocated over the next 20 years because of some grandiose plan which is supported by the Liberal Party opposition in this country. And don't forget that in the state of Victoria, the Liberal Party opposition 
is all about privatising the public housing sector. So if you are, this is a continuing struggle. It hasn't finished. It's just starting. The Barrick Beacon Estate struggle and other struggles around this state regarding the privatisation of public housing, we may have lost those struggles, but there is no way we will lose the struggle to privatise what's left of the public housing sector. Without your help, there is no way we can lose. And if you are interested, I suggest you come and join us for the vigils we hold every week, which we've been doing for the last six years, and the steps of the Victorian Parliament House, midday to 1pm. And then if you're interested in a conversation, you can uh, come down for a light lunch down at the uh, Paramount Food Hall, just down the road from uh, state government. So, Mr Andrews, don't listen to all these stupid people, you know, carrying on about your COVID response, your big bill, the state debt. But when you, you know, on the golf course, hitting your golf balls around, think of the damage you have done to the state of Victoria through your privatisation agenda. And nothing highlights this more than the cosy relationship between the state government and Transurban. That's right, that cosy relationship that was developed, which allows a private corporation to make billions of dollars of profit by extending its contract, you know, or its its contract, yeah, by extending its contract for another 40 years, and most of our listeners will be dead by now because it's only elderly people that listen to radio, although there may be a few younger podcast listeners out there. So remember that. Just remember that. It's the privatisation agenda, especially the privatisation of public housing, which is one of the most serious consequences of the Andrews-led Labor government. Let's hope the socialist left faction of the ALP, which somehow dominates the Victorian Labor government, remembers its socialist left credentials and tears up Mr Andrews' dream of privatising the public housing sector. This is the Anarchist World This Week, broadcast across Australia by the Community Radio Network. Now, was it 68? What's that? 55 years ago. 68? 12? Yeah, 55 years ago. Now, Peter Norm was just a normal Aussie. He... Uh, in 68, he turned up at the Mexico Olympics through a bit of luck. One of his competitors, you know, uh, injured himself. And he runs in the 200 metres and gets the silver medal. You think, well, that's it. There's many Australians have won silver medals, gold medals, bronze medals in various Olympics, and we've forgotten who they are. Can't remember their names. Might have remember Peter Norman. Well, there are pivotal images. Irrespective of what you say about ideas, there are pivotal images. And one of the pivotal images of the 20th century, I mean, one of the pivotal images is the, the Auschwitz death camp. That's a pivotal image. Another pivotal image is this little bloke standing between two Afro-Americans on the diocese in Mexico City who raised the black 
power salute in order to highlight oppression in the US of A. And as Tommy Smith, the gold medalist, said, this wasn't about black power, it was about human rights. It's about the rights of human beings to be able to live their life free of economic and physical coercion. Now, Mr Norman, and remember, we'd only just passed the referendum in 68 regarding giving the Commonwealth power to legislate for First Nations people in this country. And let's not remember that the White Australia policy was all the go in 68. Those of us who are old enough to remember will remember those glory days. Well, Mr Norman said, I will stand with you. And on his way to the dais, he picked up a badge, Project for Human Rights, from a USA rower, put it on his lapel, and stood proudly with Tommy Smith and Mr Carlos on that agenda. I will stand with you. He decided he wasn't going to turn away, and he paid a price. He paid a huge personal price. Now, on Peter Norman Day, which is a day which was designated by the United States Track and Field Association as a day of action, which is the 9th of October, we'll be holding a small commemoration, maybe one of the few commemorations in this country, although there'll be bigger commemorations in the US of A, at uh, Lakeside Oval in Albert Park, at where the statue of uh, Peter Norman has been erected over the last few years, just to remember that day. I will stand with you. And that's what it's about. I will stand with you. You've been listening to the Anarchist World this week, broadcast across Australia via the Community Radio Network. My name is Joseph Toscano. This program is coming to you from the studios of 3CR in Melbourne. The program is podcast. You can access the podcast by going to 3cr.org.au. You can leave messages on 0439 395 489. YouTube channels, public interests before corporate interests. JosephToscano.nam. You can write to us at Post Office Box 20, Parkville 3052. That's right, Post Office Box 20, Parkville 3052. Karina, the producer, is having the hot sweats. I don't know why. I think she's kind of mistimed. No, she's got it all in control. Number one, producer. You can leave messages on 0439 395 489. Karina, self-praise is no praise. Thank you once again for listening to The Anarchist World this week on your local community radio station. Evil minds that plot destruction Sorcerer of death's construction An analysis you'll never hear anywhere else. Anarchist World this week. Australia's sacred cow slaughterhouse. 10am every Wednesday. Listen to the Anarchist World this week for an up-to-date analysis of local, national and international events. Poisoning their brainwashed minds. Oh, larger!
3CR is Radical Radio, and that means more than just alternative current affairs and political coverage. We're Radical because we're an independent media outlet, owned and operated by the community. We're Radical because we give communities the control of their own shows, with their own music, in their own languages. We're Radical because we provide a media platform for communities to build their own power to create social change. Become a subscriber and support Radical Radio. Call us on 03 9419 8377 or subscribe online at 3cr.org.au forward subscribe. You've been listening to a 3CR podcast produced in the studios of independent community radio station 3CR in Melbourne, Australia. For more information, go to allthews.3cr.org.au.